Happy Father's Day, everybody. Amen. I love this 11 a.m. service. You come in, if you come into the 9 a.m., it's like everybody's sort of interacting. You come in at 11 a.m., it's so quiet. I, you guys are so gentle. Bless you. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, so anyway, happy Father's Day. I told Jeremy, you know, that was kind of a, it's an unrealistic video, is it not? It's like what they should be doing is the men should be playing golf, you know, like grilling steaks and waving while the, while the wife is taking care of the children. But, but uh, no, no, no laughs this morning. Um, the reality is Richard is a really good dad like that. And, uh, and thank God for fathers and for godly fathers that we have here in our church that are raising good children. Amen. You can give a hand clap to that. Praise God. So uh, we are in First Peter. You know, this morning, I told him this morning, I was sitting here during worship, and I really just felt the Lord speak to my heart. And maybe it was a word for somebody. I felt like it was a word for me. But, but sometimes I'm telling you, we just really need to be reminded of the love of God and the love that he has for us. And I just felt like the Lord reminded me and, and just told me specifically, you know, Clay, when you are at your worst, I still love you more than you could ever imagine. And there's something about that because I think we are pulled in so many different directions and it's easy to get lured away by certain things because we are not actively receiving the love of the Father and we're not actively conscious of how much He actually loves us. And when that's a reality in our life, it strengthens us to do what God's called us to do. Amen. So this morning, I want you to know that no matter how bad you feel, no matter how bad you feel like you failed, God loves you more than you could imagine. And I pray this morning that that's what you would experience. And I think that's important too because... Because the topic that we're on this morning, we've been in First Peter going through a sermon series we call Exiles. We're in First Peter chapter 4, and one of the most common themes in First Peter is suffering. I don't know if you've been hanging out and looking at it, but suffering is one of the most common themes. He's writing to people that he calls exiles. They're brothers and sisters in a strange land living in a culture that honestly has rejected them and hates them. And he's speaking to them and he's saying, look, I know you're going through suffering, but here is how you will respond in this suffering. So I want to start, I want to call this sermon Responding to Suffering. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, we'll just read this real quick and then we'll get into it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And, and God, whatever 
person it is that needs to hear, Lord God, how much you love them. And in this moment, you love them right where they're at, regardless of their failure and fault. I pray that you would somehow make that real to them. But God, I also pray that you would illuminate your word this morning because we go through suffering and we go through difficult times and, and you're the only one really that can teach us how to move through that, God, the way that you've called us to move through that. So we ask your Holy Spirit to bring life to your word and to transform us through it, God, and to speak to each person personally as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So suffering is a difficult topic, and one of the reasons it's a difficult topic is because, one, nobody likes to go through it, and two, I don't know if you remember this or not, but when I went through high school, like they had biology classes, they had math t- classes, but nobody had a class on suffering to tell me as a teenager, hey, when you go through difficulties, this is how you're supposed to respond to it. When you have suffering, this is how you're supposed to respond to it. When you experience loss or pain or trauma, this is how you respond to it. They don't have that class in high school, but the issue is, is that Life really is a classroom, and class is always in session, right? There's always something going on, and God is always wanting to use it to teach us something about life in general and to shape us into what He wants us to be. And so here's the thing you got to understand as a Christian is that we are always going to be dealing with suffering in this life. It's just the way that it is. Jesus prepared us, and so biblically we've got a theology of power and we have a theology of suffering. What does that mean? It means that when we come in here as a people, we believe in the power of God. I believe that God can turn things around. I believe that God can save. I believe God can heal. I believe God can deliver. I believe He can do supernatural works to transform circumstances and to bring peace and healing and deliverance in a situation. You believe that this morning. Amen. And so, but on the same hand, we have to mix with that and balance with that a theology of suffering. Because sometimes in this life, people aren't going to get healed. Sometimes in this life, people are going to die. Sometimes in this life, we're going to experience pain and suffering that we don't understand. doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or a reason to it. And it's difficult because if we think God is supposed to fix everything for us in this life, we're going to honestly be offended and, and be, be in danger of possibly even falling away because we begin to mistrust God and what He's doing. And so even if you read Scripture, I, 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 would, I would venture to say... I would venture to say that even in this room this morning, people are experiencing suffering. Now, suffering is often multi-layered. Like, there's different types of it. It could be uh, financial. It could be relational. It could be with your family currently. It could be with your children. Uh, it could be all kinds. Maybe you're just dealing with anxiety that you don't know how to overcome. And it's multi-layered and various things are going on in our life. And we're dealing with suffering because in some ways it's always happening in our life. But in the Bible, if you read, here's what you don't find. You don't find, if you read Scripture, just everything going right for people all the time. I don't know if you've read the Bible or not, but what you don't, you hope to find, man, just like when people serve God, everything goes right all the time. Thank God we're serving the Lord means everything's going to... No, man. Over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is a broken world where people are going through difficult times, but they are having a relationship with a God who loves them in it. And so you see this throughout Scripture. And if I read Scripture, there's people who've laid it out over the years, but I saw uh, dozens, honestly, of different types of suffering that takes place in Scripture. So I just want to lay a few out for you. Maybe you're going through one of them, maybe you're not. The first type is Adamic suffering. And what I mean by that is we go back to the beginning. All suffering in this life 
comes from the beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God by believing the lie of Satan, believing that they could be their own gods, choosing for themselves what was good and evil. It unleashed sin and brokenness throughout the whole world. Now sometimes people go through suffering and brokenness and they think, well, God is the cause of this. God is not ultimately the cause of it. He is sovereign over all things, which means He can use and He does work all things toward His ultimate purpose. But when you see evil and pain and suffering and loss, and sin what you see is not the work of God you see the work of the devil and so all of us are going to go through sin and suffering because this world is simply broken and so everybody that exists on this planet is 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 subject to it period secondly is the demonic suffering in this world believe it or not a lot of the suffering that we face is because there is an unseen supernatural realm with forces of darkness that want to destroy your soul I know isn't it exciting this morning it's like praise God Oh, great life. See, the Bible doesn't lay out, it lays out a worldview that says you are in a warfare. This life, as, look, we fight so hard for everything to be cut. Who, who wants comfort in here this morning? Like, wouldn't it be good if I could just get up and give you a prophet, prophetic world? From here on out, saith the Lord, everything will be comfortable. That'd be great. Everybody would be like, yeah, I'll take that this morning. I receive that. See, he doesn't say that, though. He doesn't say that. He says things will be tough, there will be difficult, there will be challenges. You have an enemy of your soul, and you are literally in a spiritual warfare. And so we are engaged not in a life where we're trying to seek how comfortable we can be. We are engaged in a warfare with a demonic power in which Jesus has taught us how to overcome. And so we might experience an attack from the demonic realm, and that's, that's quite possible. Uh, victim suffering. Sometimes you just suffer because somebody does evil against you, right? Something happens, or maybe you're abused, maybe you're assaulted, maybe your spouse leaves you for, for someone else, maybe you go through some type of pain or affliction or whatever it may be, but you're the victim and somebody has done some injustice to you. There's collective suffering. Like the Hebrew people who literally, if you were born as a Jew during the time that they were in Egypt, you were just born into slavery, you were born into bondage, you were born into suffering, and you were a part of suffering because you were a part of that collective nation also there's disciplinary suffering now nobody likes this suffering but do you know that the bible teaches that we actually can go through suffering because of the discipline that we receive now sometimes when i discipline naomi it seems she acts like she is absolutely suffering anybody's kids do that whenever you discipline it's like this is the worst thing i've ever been through in my life well guess what god because he loves us does the same thing and sometimes we are suffering in our lives because god is disciplining us not because he's angry at us or mad at us but the scripture says because he wants to bring fruits of righteousness out of us he wants to use circumstances to change our behavior the same way that a good father does with his children there's also persecution suffering like in the scripture you saw the apostle paul he's beaten with 39 stripes he's beaten with rods he's shipwrecked he's persecuted and throughout the world today there are people who name the name of Jesus Christ. They're persecuted for it. And Jesus said, if the world hates me, guess what? It's going to hate you as well. I read an interesting scripture here in our Bible studies as we've been reading through the New Testament together. John 7, 7, it's an interesting verse because he's speaking to religious leaders. And he says, the world cannot hate you because you, you don't know me. He says, but the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He says, the world hates me because I live such a life and I speak in such a way that they're exposed that what they do and what they're living in is evil and the world hates me. And let me tell you something, the world will continue to hate Christians. 
And sometimes it's hard for us to, to believe and understand. But Christians throughout history have been persecuted. You have actually been privileged enough to be born in a season and in a time where we are not under current persecution. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord for that. But I'm telling you, a time may come when you, if you choose to follow Jesus, may be persecuted and suffer for it. There's empathetic suffering. Maybe you just know somebody who's going through something, and because they're going through it, you feel their pain. Like you got a lost loved one or you got a broken loved one or they're going through hardship, they're dealing with addiction, they're far from God, whatever it may be, but you feel their pain and you suffer because they suffer. There's testimonial suffering. I saw a couple of years ago where a woman's son had been brutally murdered and everybody wanted to ride in the streets and they had started riding. And two days after her son was brutally murdered unjustly, she stood up publicly and she said, Listen, I don't want anybody to be riding anymore for my son's sake. Jesus Christ has forgiven me and cleansed me of all my sins. And therefore, because he has forgiven me, I can forgive this person who killed my son. And we need to forgive and we need to turn to the Lord and we need to move on. That suffering that she experienced somehow by the grace of God, she turned it as an opportunity to give a testimony of God's goodness and grace and forgiveness. And sometimes that's what God wants to do in our life there's testimonial suffering then there's providential suffering preventative suffering there's mysterious suffering and these three i think kind of fit together let me tell you something about providential suffering nobody likes this but it happens for example in the bible you have joseph in the old testament you remember joseph the guy is given a dream that one day he's going to be over his brothers he's going to be over his father he tells the vision he tells the dream and they end up selling him into slavery after they want to kill him, but they say, well, we'll let him live. So he's sold into slavery. Then he's falsely accused. Then he's put into prison for 15 years. And all of those years of suffering that he goes through, maybe even wondering, God, what in the world? I thought you gave me a promise. All of that suffering led to a moment where he was set second in command in Egypt. And literally, it opened up the door to save the entire world that was in a famine. My point being is that sometimes you go through things that are mysterious that you don't understand. And it doesn't even make sense but you're going through it because God is providential over everything and he knows your life from beginning to end he knows things that you can't understand and it could be a matter of fact I know it is that God is more concerned with the salvation of the world than he is with your comfort amen I know y'all ain't gonna amen me this morning but that's good and so we have providential suffering where God's doing things that we don't understand, and it's often mysterious. We don't know why we're going through everything that we're going through. But there's also preventative suffering. I was talking to Jeremy, and he shared a story with me, and, and I, I'm going to try to tell the story, but it makes good sense. He says, this guy told this story, he said there was an ancient Chinese farmer. He was a horseradish farmer, right? And his son was out. Uh, fixing the horseradishes and tilling the ground and all this stuff. And, and he's out there because the father is too old to do it anymore. And as he's doing this, he, the horse gets up and runs off. And the son goes to the father and he says, Father, this is a catastrophe. The horse has run off. We can't till the ground. We can't farm the, the radishes. We've lost all income. We may as well die. And the father says, Son, I don't know what this is. I can't call it. Two days later, the horse comes running down off the hill, and he's bringing a hundred more horses with it. And the son says, Dad, this is a miracle. Forget horseradishes. We're, forget, forget horseradishes. We are horse traders now. Like, this is, this is different. This is a miracle. And the father says, Son, I don't know if this is a miracle or not. I don't know what this is. I can't call it. 
And the son goes out and he says, no, I'm training these horses up. I'm going to domesticate them. We're going to sell them. So he starts training horses. The first horse bucks him, shatters his right leg. And in those times, there's no way he's going to heal it. He's sitting there. He's crippled for life. He says, Dad, we're destroyed. I don't know what we're going to do. We got nothing now. He says, Son, I don't know what this is. I can't call it. All of a sudden, 8,000 samurais come off the mountainside and they say, we want to call your son to enlist with us. We're going to fight the Taoist army today. And, and, and the, the, the father says, son, I don't know what this is. I can't call it. But he says he's crippled and he can't go. And so he goes on. Those 8,000 men leave. They leave him behind because he's a cripple and they all go unto their death. And the father says, son, I don't know what this is. I can't call it. The point being is, you go through a lot of things in your life and they lead to a string of consequences that you could never fully understand. You could never fully understand what happens in your life and what it will lead to and how it will transform you and how it will create waves in your life of impact. And sometimes the worst things that happen in your life actually end up being somehow, strangely, mysteriously, some of the best things that ever happened to you. And sometimes you've got to go through great pain and great suffering and time and misunderstanding to ever come to the conclusion that that was the reality. And somehow I believe, based on what I've read in Scripture, that when we come to the end, as confusing as this life is, and all the questions that we've got about why God did the what, things the way that He did, when we come to the end, we are going to sit there in the glory of God and say, it all makes sense now. I couldn't call it then. I couldn't call it then, but it makes sense now, Lord, that you were doing something that I could not understand. And see, there's also punishment suffering. And you remember Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Guess what? They dropped dead at the doorstep. If you commit a crime, likely you will go to jail and you suffer because you committed a crime. You did something wrong. You drink too much, you smoke too much, it's going to affect your body. You're going to punish yourself in that regard. There's consequential suffering. There's apocalyptic suffering. There's a lot of suffering in there. Everybody like, praise God, Clay, this is encouraging this morning. <laughs> really appreciate the word, brother. Apocalyptic suffering, though, is, is, is the fact that in the last days, Jesus says that there's coming a time upon the world that no time has happened like it until now, and no time shall happen like it again. It is a time of great tribulation and great suffering and a time of testing that comes upon the entire world. And guess what? It's quite possible that we are right very close to that particular time, and we're moving in that direction. Amen. Everybody's like, man, this is great, Clay. What are you preparing us for? Here's the point. Right now, the church at large loves comfort just like the culture so much that it is not preparing Christians for imminent persecution and suffering. And if you're not prepared, what happens when suffering comes? Well, you're offended and you fall away. Well, God was supposed to keep me from this. Well, God was supposed to save me. He was supposed to take care of me. I wasn't supposed to have to go through this. Just like the Christians in the early days, he said, you're going to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony, and because you did not love your life even unto death. Now, that's a hard call for a Christian that most of us are not preaching in the American church because we up to this point have not faced persecution and suffering. But he says we're heading toward an end-time direction where pressure comes on the entire wor world and you must prepare your hearts for that because in this life, you will suffer. Amen. Amen. And you know, that's, nobody obviously wants to hear that. What we want to hear is we want somebody to tickle our ears. The false prophets of old, the, the, the true prophets would tell them, hey, suffering's coming. The false prophets will say, peace, peace, safety, blessing. That's how they would say it. And not that God wants us to live in a state of constant fear or that, that suffering is always imminent. God wants us to enjoy life. 
But you found that the early Christians found enjoyment even in their suffering. How's that possible? They'd be beaten and and return with great joy with the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. They tapped into something deeper than what we have tapped into because we think God is our genie that is supposed to bring us comfort. Amen. But here's something I want you to understand is even though you will suffer in this life, you're not always a victim. One of the things I found in our generation, like if you grew up, if you, if you study history and you study generations and the mindset of generations, like people who grew up World War I, World War II, those types of generations, so they were tough. Like they just didn't give a rip. You couldn't get them down, no nothing. Our generation, we get down when we get a hangnail. I mean, like, we, oh, my toe. You know, I mean, we get, we get down over stuff, and we play the victim like nobody's business. We're the victim. We're the ones hurting. And we like to play the victim. Why? Because it elicits somebody's attention, somebody's compassion, somebody's sympathy. And get this, one of the things that it does is it lets me feel like I can excuse my sin and behavior because I'm the one suffering. Do you know that you can go through suffering and God wants to comfort you in that? He wants to heal you in that? He wants to bless you in that? But see, He gives us grace in such a way where He says, nothing that you go through, no matter how much suffering you go through, is never an excuse for you to sin and move in a direction away from me. Because there's grace available is what He's trying to say. But see, sometimes we like to do that and, and adopt a victim mentality. Here's what Jesus says, John 16, 33. He said, in the world you will have tribu- tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, you live in this world, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be suffering. But he said, take heart, because I've shown you the way. I went through ultimate suffering. I was beaten, rejected, maligned, lied about, beaten, cut apart, crucified on a cross, spat upon. But I defeated it all. I overcame the grave. I was raised from the dead. And I will show you the way to eternal life in the same direction. If you're willing to give me your life, you will overcome the same way that I've overcome. Now, one of the things that I think you'll notice, maybe this is, this is just an observation that I've had. Some of the people who bring the greatest help and the greatest harm in this world have one thing in common. They've both experienced great suffering. What do you mean by that? You know, one time, we say, a lot of times we say, hurt people hurt people. You ever heard that phrase? People who are hurting tend to become very selfish, and they tend to hurt others because they themselves are hurting. Uh, but, but see, that's not what God's necessarily called us to. I was reading something about a couple of different people this week. One of them was Mother Teresa. Uh, if you're not familiar with her, she's a woman who basically spent her life caring for the destitute, the sick, the broken, the poor, and just and loved them and showed great compassion to them. And that's what she gave her life's work to in ministry. When she was uh, about eight years old, she watched her father die. And she, she went through that pain, but her mother led her to the Lord, and they prayed through it, and she talked about how her father was going to be in heaven one day and that we have a short life to live and that every one of us is going to face death, but Jesus has overcome death. And, and so rather than, than, than grieving to the point of not overcoming, we grieve the loss of our father, but we turn to Jesus, allow him to heal our hearts, and then allow him to move us into a position where we can serve others that are going through the same suffering that we're going through. That's what her mother taught her. And so she had an encounter with Jesus where she started to serve those who were going through the same suffering that she experienced on the other hand i read about a guy a couple of weeks ago named harold shipman you guys ever heard of this guy he's the most prolific serial killer in the world that's ever existed that they say man has killed 250 people that they know of if you read his backstory he had an early childhood quite like mother Teresa. 
He watched his mother suffer and die at a young age. And when they analyzed him, what they decided was that out of his pain and out of his suffering, he decided to inflict the same pain on people that he saw his mother go through and it turned him in a different direction. What's my point? You can go through suffering in this life, harden yourself against God, hate God, reject God, or you can go through suffering in this life and look to the one who came and entered into your suffering on the cross. Let him heal your heart and move you in a direction to serve others and love the way that he did instead of sinning and hurting people. Amen. Amen. So option number one, Peter says you can suffer and you can sin if you want to. That's an option. And here's what he lays out, verse 1. I'm going to read it again just so to remind you. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now for the time that is past, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So what he starts out by saying is when you suffer, we need to look to Jesus to get our mindset right. He says, arm yourselves with the same mindset, the same way of thinking that Christ had when he was in the flesh. Now this is important to consider because Jesus did do some suffering, didn't he? Do you remember Jesus even in the beginning of his suffering? Like he understands the pain you go through. He took on the sins of the world and even to his friends one time he said, Guys, I am exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Like what I'm feeling right now in my flesh feels like I would rather die. I would rather die than experience what I'm experiencing. But rather than pushing him into a place to sin or pushing him into a place to run, what it pushed him into was a place of prayer where he went to the Father to receive supernatural strength from the Spirit to enable him to do what he could not do otherwise. And so arm yourselves with the same mindset because here's the thing. If you look at Peter and the early Christians, he talks about suffering because they were suffering. He watched, they watched their family members die. They watched them be beaten. They watched them be crucified. They were stripped of privileges. They couldn't meet on a Sunday morning and have pancakes with pops and invite everybody. If they did and had pancakes with pops and invited everybody and worshiped publicly and put something out on Facebook, guess who would show up? The Roman government to drag them out and potentially crucify them. They were underground. They were being horrendously persecuted. And he says they're going through suffering. But here's the thing. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have a therapist down the street that they could go through. They didn't have a multiplicity of medications they could put themselves on. What they had was the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm not saying that the things that are offered to us in this generation are not necessarily a good thing. What I'm saying is sometimes it would probably be better for us to have the things that we're offered stripped so that we could actually allow our suffering to push us into the depths that God wants us to go. Sometimes we cover up pain and, and, and try to get an easy fix rather than allowing it to take us into the depths of God's Spirit so that He can empower us and transform us in a way that we have never experienced before in our lives. 
Consider that. Consider the shortcuts we take in our pampered generation when God is saying, no, I want you to use this to push you deeper into me so that you can seek my face and experience my power in a greater way than ever before. See, they had the comforter. They had the Holy Spirit. They had somebody that they could talk to, and I I believe that they tapped into supernatural power because rather than going to other shortcuts that the world offered, they went straight to God. And that's important. And Even when you talk about mindset, uh, Jeremy and I was talking the other day, there's, there's these guys out, maybe you've heard of some of them, maybe you haven't, but like there's a bunch of guys, I don't know, I don't even know what they do, they work out and they do other weird stuff and they've got all these, that, these hard sayings, they're just like tough guys, you know what I'm saying? Like they got, the, they got these sayings, you know, you got an excuse for not, for not doing what you need to do, nobody cares, work harder, you know what I'm saying? And they're trying to develop a mindset that's based on the fact that guess what, life's hard. You got pain, who cares, work harder. You got difficulty, who cares, work harder. Right? And one guy even said, he was joking around, he said, I thought about what Jocko Willink would say, you know, because I lost one leg and I'm running and I'm experiencing pain. He said, oh, you lost a leg? Good. Lose another one. And it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know about that particular mindset, but they're tapping into a particular point that actually we, ha- we have in America often really kind of softened ourselves to a place that we can barely take anything. We're not prepared for any kind of difficulty. Any little thing that comes our way, it eats us alive. We don't know how to respond properly to suffering. We don't know how to go to God. We get mad at God, just like that. As soon as something doesn't go our way, boom, mad at God. And God, listen, God never promised you that you weren't going to have difficulty. That's not on Him. That's on our sin. That's on the devil. Jesus came and defeated it, and he said he'd get you through this life, and he would sustain you through it. You've got a calling here on the, in this world, in this planet, but you will experience suffering. But see, there are, there are times when we have to get our mindset right about these things. Like Jesus said, that I'm willing to get... And that's what he said. He said, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What's he saying? He's saying when you get to a place as a Christian where you're willing to go through suffering and you still choose Jesus, and you still choose the will of God, he says, that's when you know you've ceased from sin. That's when it's no longer about you, about your pleasure, about your comfort. That's when you realize, no, this person has decided they're going to live for the will of God no matter what they go through. And God calls us to that. This is why he says to take up our cross daily. And I'm not saying this is easy. Even as I'm studying this, I'm saying, Lord, how can I do this? If I were to go through certain things, I I hypothesize certain events in my mind, pain that I might go through, or, or things that I know other people have suffered. And I think, Lord, how could I actually have this mindset during this? I would need your spirit to do a work in me to have this mindset. And that's the prayer that I pray. I pray, Lord, you've got to give me this mindset that Christ had because I'm afraid if I go through suffering, I will not have that mindset. I'm afraid I'd get angry. I'm afraid I'd get hard. I'm afraid that I would fall away. You've got to sustain me by your grace. But when we suffer, we can respond in the flesh or we can respond in the spirit. And so he lists a lot of things when he talked about this suffering. And this suffering, in some sense, can lead to sin. Now, let's look at this list that he laid out of the types of sin that um, suffering could lead to. Number one, he said it could lead to sensuality. And if you look at the word there, it's really unbridled lust, no restraint, whatever feels good. So when you, how many of you have gone through some hard times and it's just like all you want to do is be angry and shut off and go somewhere and commit some sin? Anybody's like, amen, that's me, I've done that. Everybody's like, no, Clay, brother, we wouldn't do that. But the question is, where do you lack restraint? Is it with food? 
Is it with money? Is it with sexuality? Is it with your tongue? Uh, with the words that you speak? Is it with anger? Your emotions? And what he's saying is, yeah, you may be hurting, but self-destructing does not help that pain. It can actually create greater cycles of pain and self-destruction if you don't turn to Him in that. Number two is passion. And this word means impulses, longings, covetousness. When you're suffering, what evil desires pull at you and dominate you? Every single person in this room has sinful patterns of behavior and habits that when left to themselves, it's like gravity that just sort of pulls on them. You know what those are, right? You know what those things are that on a daily basis you have to resist and you have to fight and you have to say, no, I'm choosing to live for God in this. He said we, we, we can go into those passions. Three, he lists drunkenness. And the word there is actually overflow of wine. And, uh, but the question here is, what, where are you prone to addiction? Because in their, in their day, uh, alcohol was kind of a big thing. But do you realize that, that they had not even close to the same access that we have to drugs? We, we are the most drugged society in human history in America currently. And a lot of it is legal. Okay? So understand that as well. One of the greatest epidemics that has ever hit this part of the country ever was with legal opioids, prescription, doctors, right? So what we have is we got to understand what addictions are we prone to? He says because what you'll do is when you're suffering, you may go into a place where you self-medicate somehow to try to deal with your issues. And we see that happening in a multiplicity of ways. And the truth is you need to learn how to follow the Spirit rather than to follow the ways of the world in responding to what you're going through. So number four is orgies. I hope I don't have to give an extensive definition of that one. Yeah. If you look at the Greek word, it actually refers to the fact that they would have uh, reveling, is what they call it, parties and parades in which people would get together, they would drink. And so he's mixing these words together. That's why he has drinking parties as the next one. So it's like a social environment where people get together, they drink, they party, they lose kind of, you know, just all their moral uh, consciousness and just dive into sin. And then they actually... Uh, promote promiscuity and sexual sin because it honored the gods that they worshipped. Now, how many of you understand that in our culture this is kind of just like being on a college campus or going to a lot of the parades that are currently happening in our culture, right? It's the same type of stuff. And so he moves on to say, now you go after them. He says they malign you because you're not going after them in the same flood of debauchery as them. Like, they speak negatively of you. I remember when I first got saved, I, all these things, this was my list. It was like, oh, yeah, what do you do, Clay, during, for fun? Well, this list right here, actually, in 1 Peter 4, that's me. And then when I got saved, God saved me out of it, set me free from it. And guess what? The people, the people that I was around, they didn't much care for it that much. I mean, some of them were still nice to me because they were my buddies. But at the end of the day, what happens is when you start living for God, those people don't like it because it exposes their behavior. They want to be affirmed in their behavior. And when we're sinning, what do we want? We want to be affirmed in our behavior no matter what it is. We want to be justified. We want to say, well, I'm suffering. I have a right to do this. But see, the solution when you're suffering is, number one, to remember that your sin caused Jesus to suffer. Because here's the thing. Before you and I can be victims, we have to confess that we are the villains. I know everybody wants to be a victim, but number one, you've got to confess that you're a villain. I've had the honor and privilege of counseling a lot of people over the past ten years. 
And in that, man, I've seen some people that have gone through some legitimate suffering that you, when, you, when you hear what they have to say, your response is not, nobody cares, work harder. That's not your response. Because sometimes people have suffered and gone through pain and they need deep compassion, they need deep love, they need deep healing, and they need understanding and they need somebody to listen to them. So that's not the response. I'm not saying that that, that, that that secular response is the right response. Sometimes you can harden yourself to the point where you just have an outer shell and you are dead on the inside. And so when you have gone through deep suffering, you need Jesus to enter into that pain to heal those types of things that are in your life. But here's the thing. Even when, when I would walk people through inner healing, what I would always say first and foremost, see, because they'd gone through so much pain, they had rejected God. They were angry at God. Well, if God really loved me, why would he do this? And what I said was, listen, what has been done to you is not the work of God. What has been done to you is the work of the devil. And the scripture teaches that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And on the sin, and on the cross, he died for your sin, their sin. And all, because he took that pain by his stripes, you can be healed. But you must first confess like everybody else that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And when Christ forgives you, he will enable you by his grace to forgive those who have traumatized and hurt you. And when you're able to release them, God will heal your heart and transform who you are. Amen. That's the miracle of the gospel. But it's hard for people to receive because they want to stay the victim and they want to be angry. You can't stay the victim and be a Christian. In Christianity, he heals you from your victimhood. He makes you the victor. You are an overcomer through the healing that he offers. But here's one of the problems. You know, this is something that's interesting I thought about. Now, how come nobody, like every time somebody protests or marches or does this, they protest or they march on somebody else's sin? You ever notice that? How come we ain't getting together and protesting and marching on our own sin? Imagine me going out and saying, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm an angry person. I'm a complainer. I've sinned. I'm protesting me today. Ain't nobody does that. Why? Because what sinners do is they point at other people's sin in order to justify their own. They point at other people's sin in order to feel better about their own. And that's one of the things that people do. So you've got to remember that your sin caused Jesus to suffer first. Number two, Jesus used his suffering not to sin, but to serve. Jesus went through suffering, but he chose not to sin. Instead, he chose to serve people through his suffering. And thirdly, Jesus says, because he did that and showed you the way, you can be like Jesus and you can help others. Amen. Suffering is expensive, man. It costs you time, it costs you money, it costs you all kinds of things. It costs you your, your temperament, costs you your behavior sometimes. It can even open a door for the demonic to come and attack you in the midst of your suffering. But number two, your second option is that you can suffer, and instead of sinning, you can suffer and serve. First Peter 4, 7 through 9, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He says the end of all things is at hand. And he wrote that about 2,000 years ago. And see, here's the thing. You and I, we see time in days and months and years. God sees times, time around his son. Matter of fact, Scripture says that God sees a thousand years is as a day to the Lord, and a day is as a thousand years. So what he did is on the cross 2,000 years ago, he caused the most important event in human history to happen. Through that, when Jesus died on the cross, he said this is the most important, this is the salvation and the redemption of all of humanity. And since he was raised from the dead, defeating death, hell, the grave, sin, and Satan, 
And seated at the right hand of God the Father, he says, now is the end times. The end of all things is at hand. And guess what? I'm going to tell you something. 2,000 years past that, how much closer to the actual end do you think we are? So you have to take that into, my, in, in, into account and into your mind and like allow that reality of the end to set in on you and grip in on you because God says we are in the final chapter of human history. And if we are in the final chapter of human history, He says you need to be a certain way. If you're going to choose to not sin and serve, He says there's certain mindsets that need to come into your life. And He gives a list there. If we're suffering but it leads to us responding into the Spirit, number one, our will will be self-controlled. He says you need to be self-controlled. Now how many of you feel like, man, I've mastered the control of myself. Self-control is the the last fruit of the Spirit. There's nine of them on the bottom. There's self-control. I like to think that self-control is the pause button. Because for me, just when I'm about to lose it, I will often sense the Holy Spirit just sort of jump up from somewhere in here in my belly and say, dude, pause. And then when he says that, I say, oh yeah, that's you, Lord. You're still there, thank God. I just about killed that guy. (laughs) And then he diverts me back into love, into joy, into peace, into responding with gentleness and kindness. See, there, he gives us that self-control. But the problem is, is in our world, what we do not have is self-control. Everybody just running after everything they feel, whatever passion, angry, hollering, going after some of the craziest things, if you look in culture, that we have ever seen. What our world does not have is self-control. And he says you've got to be self-controlled. Number two, in your mind, you've got to be sober-minded, he says. And the sober mind, we said this, he uses this word sober a lot. I guess everybody was just wasted all the time back in those days. I don't know, I guess people just walked around hammered all the time. It was like at a frat party constantly or something. Uh, but, but he says you need to be sober-minded because the opposite of a sober mind is a drunk mind, right? And have y'all, have y'all ever seen two drunk people fight and argue? You ever seen that happen? I've seen it a couple times. How many of you listen to it and you're like, man, this has been productive. Like, that was helpful. <laughs> Seems like they made a lot of ground. No, what you heard was a bunch of hollering and it made not. It's like, I don't even know what that guy just said. And they're just hollering at one another and swinging and missing and all kinds of stuff going on. He says, don't be like it. But if you look at our culture, what people don't have is a sober mind. They've got an anxious mind. They've got a fearful mind. They've got a depraved mind, a promiscuous mind, a perverse mind. Right, But they don't have a sober mind. And they live in a place of just going wild all the time. Just get on the internet and you will find plenty of that going on. He said, thirdly, in our soul, he said we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Now listen to this. You ain't going to believe what I'm about to say. But you need to take this to heart. He says you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded because the end is at hand. Why? For the sake of your prayers. The most important element to advancing the purposes of God right now And what we're doing on earth is our prayers. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You don't think that's true. But biblically, that's what he lays out. He says the most important element to advancing the purposes of God right now in your life and in our world and in our community and in our culture is that we stay self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can give ourselves to prayer. That's crazy. See, because he actually still believes that prayer is powerful. He believes that prayer works in the supernatural realm that you can't see. And while we're fighting flesh and blood, he's calling us to actually fight spirits and principalities who are moving flesh and blood to do evil. And he says one of the ways that you're going to do that is through the gospel and through prayer and through love that covers a multitude of sin. 
So our prayers. And when you pray, number one, prayer helps you because it helps you verbally process. How many of you, like whenever you're going through a bad day, like you verbally process to your spouse or your friend, you ever do that? You ever just call up your friend and just go off, lose it? Oh, I can't believe it. And usually it doesn't turn. Like after, usually after I get done doing that, I feel pretty bad. But see, God is saying, no, you can verbally process to me. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? Like those guys are in there just verbally processing to the Lord. I mean, they're in there like, you know what, Lord? I'm surrounded by enemies. Everybody hates me. This one's got a tongue that needs cut out. I'd like that guy to be dead. I'm sa- Like he's going through all this stuff that he's going through, and he's verbally processing. It's right there in the Scripture. But then as he's verbally processing to the Lord, he said, but then I saw you, and I understood therein, and I saw your goodness and your redemption, and I knew that you were for me. And therefore, in the midst of this, I'm going to lift up a song of praise and thanksgiving to the one who delivers me out of every situation that I go through. And you see him processing this with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit meeting him where he's at. The problem with us is that when we go through suffering, instead of verbally processing to God, we end up venting to everybody else and staying in it because we want to stay the victim. Amen. And I know if you're going through suffering, you're like, Clay, shut up this morning. I ain't trying to hear all this because this just doesn't feel right to me. But number two, you transfer the burden. One guy said that in prayer, if you leave with the continued burden, all you did was complain. Now, I don't know that that's completely true, but I will say this. There's a place in prayer where you realize, I can't pack this thing. And in prayer is the place that you can give that to the Lord, pour your soul out to Him and say, God, I'm entrusting you to this because I can't carry it. And that means it's in your hands now. And I can't control it. I can't make anything else happen, but I'm putting it in your hands. And sometimes you have to do that over and over and over again. But he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says in your heart, you've got to love one another and show hospitality. Now, he didn't say you had to like everyone. Sometimes my liking on people fluctuates. Anybody amen, right? Sometimes people do me something, my like levels drop. I'm like, I don't know how much I like that person. But he said, Clay, I'm not necessarily called you to like everyone, but I have called you to love everyone. And my love is unconditional because I love you even when you are at your worst and when you fail. And I choose to sacrifice for you and for your betterment even when you fail. And in the same way, I want you to love people like that and I want you to be hospitable. I want you to have an open heart to minister to people in these situations during hard times when they're lost and half crazy and everything's going wrong. you got to love them. Number five, with your tongue, he says, don't grumble, but do cover sins in love. So when you're going through a hard time, I tell you, I was telling them this morning, even when I go through some lightly hard times, I'm a bit of a complainer. Anybody will come in here with me this morning? Give me a hand. Just say, yeah, that's me. I'm a bit of a complainer. Praise God. I'm glad we could acknowledge that together. I feel better already. It's been a good session for me. Um, so, so here's the thing, though, and this is what always convicts me about my complaining, is that if you look at Israel as a case study in the Old Testament, God's bringing them into the promised land over and over and over again. You know what they do? They complain. They don't trust God. Literally, the word in the Hebrew, complain, is, is a Hebrew word, loon, L-O-O-N. That means if you complain, you're a loon, right? But now, really, there's a double meaning to that word. Get this. You can look it up. I promise. I ain't lying. The double meaning to this word is spend another night. 
what was an 11-day journey for them ended up being 40 years because God said, I tested you in the wilderness to see if you would trust me or you would complain. And because you kept complaining, you kept spending another night in the same place. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, it ain't no wonder I'm still in the same spot I'm in because I've been complaining this whole time. And if I would just trust you and give you praise and keep my mouth shut and be edifying and encourage the people around me when I'm going through difficult times, maybe I could move through this season a little bit quicker and we'd see your promises come to pass just a little bit more. So he says, don't complain, don't grumble. He says, but love covers a multitude of sin. And this is important while we're doing this because you know, people do you wrong and love covers a multitude of sin. But here's, not, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you just overlook sin like there's a difference between secrecy and privacy this is important because sometimes if sin is going on it needs to be exposed people do not need to be abused or damaged and sin does not need to run rampant it doesn't need to be hidden sometimes it needs to be exposed but sometimes understand this so we're not keeping sin secret but for the sake of the person who has sin we want to keep things private so there's people that I know that have done certain things. I don't want to expose them. I want to bring them into a place of privacy where they can receive healing. I mean, if you're going to get your gallbladder took out, right, they don't say, hey, just strip down your clothes. We're going to do it right here in the waiting room, do they? It'd be weird. They take you into a private room and put you on a little gown, and then they do the work in a private room. Amen. Love covers a multitude of sin in that sense. So lastly, I'm going to finish up here in these last verses. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 through 11. Here's the end of it. We're better together when we serve. And he says, as each has received a gift, he says, use it not to sin, but to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the question is, who is, the, who is the steward and who is the owner of your life? That's my final question to you. Who's the owner and who is the steward of your life? I think the main reason that a lot of people don't come to Jesus just in my conversations with them is because they are fine with Jesus forgiving their sins, right? They're even fine with Jesus saving them. But what they have a hard time with is the fact that Jesus would have to become Lord and he's going to have to start being the decision maker for my life because there's certain things that I don't want to give up. Amen. So <laughs> I want to give you four quick different uh, dynamics of who's the owner of your life. If you're a godless person, here's what you say. You say, I'm the owner of my life. My money's mine. What I do with my time is mine. How I serve is mine. Uh, this life is mine. I get to choose what I want to do with it and that's all that there is. Now, if you get saved but you're still a selfish Christian, here's what you say. You say, I'm the owner and God's the steward. And here's what they say. So I'm the owner. This means I get to do what I want with my life. And God, you're here to bless it. Here's my plans. Here's my projects. Here's what I want to see happen. And God, you're going to bless my plans and my purposes for my life. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut a deal. I go to church on Sunday and I read the Bible and I pray a little bit. And then you do what I say. Anybody amen me? Like, that, that is the American gospel right there. Like, I'm going to do my part, God, but if you don't do yours, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to shut you out because I want things done my way. But see, then you could just be the lazy Christian and then you could be, you could say, well, God is the owner and he's the steward. God's just going to do what God's going to do. And you know what? If God wants to save people, God will save people. 
No, 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 that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. He calls you a co-laborer. And so he's given you his spirit because he wants to partner with you in the salvation of all humanity. He's decided to use you. So you don't get to say God is both the owner and steward. No, you are the steward of what this life has given you. And you will be judged according to every deed that is done in your body. And whether or not we've used this salvation that God has given us to extend the kingdom of God will be revealed on the day of judgment by fire, the scripture says. Amen. I know that's encouraging this morning. Lastly, you can be a godly person and you can say, God is the owner and I am the steward. What that means is, God owns my life. And this is hard for us, man, because we want to sit on the throne of it, right? I do sometimes. Sometimes I try to take it back. But what I say is, God, this is, this is your life. I'm simply the steward. You've given me this. So my time, my job, my life, my, my wife, my kids, my house, my money, my resource, everything I have, Lord, it's yours Teach me how to steward it the way that you want me to that will bring glory to your name. See, so he says, you may have different gifts. If you're going to speak, speak as one of the very oracles of God. If you're going to serve, serve, serve with love and humility. Like God has given you a gift, but all of these things are not your own. These are, these are God's. And this is actually, he actually said, now listen, you think that if you find your life and you get a hold of what you want, he said, you'll actually end up losing it. But he said, the paradox is, if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel and his kingdom, you'll actually end up finding it. And in that is the truest joy and purpose and meaning that you've ever experienced in your life because you've said, God, this is yours. I'm yours. I'm simply stewarding what you've given me. But see, that's difficult when we go through suffering, isn't it? And that's what Peter's trying to get at. He's trying to say, I want you to have that kind of a mindset that God's the owner of your life even when you suffer, even when you go through pain. And he says, here's the thing, how many of you have had this thought? Like, how come bad people seem to not be going through difficult times and good people suffer sometimes? Y'all ever had that thought? Especially as a Christian, you're like, well, I, I became a Christian. God was supposed to fix this thing. See, God never promised to fix it. He actually said throughout the entire world, everybody will go through suffering. And in some ways, Christians might go through even more suffering than non-Christians. Like there's going to be hard times in this life. But here's what he says. He says, ultimately you have victory in the end and you need to root and ground your, your heart in the fact that Jesus is returning. He's coming back in the clouds of glory to put an end to all suffering and establish a righteous and holy and perfect kingdom in which you will dwell forever. He said, put your hope fully in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But while you're here, look to the one who suffered the same way that you will suffer but yet chose to serve and chose to love in the midst of it. And if you even look at some of the scriptures, Romans 8, 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He's saying, whatever you're going through right now, he says, whenever the end comes and you're sitting in God's glorious kingdom and everything is summed up, you won't even be able to set your suffering up next to it and compare it because it will swallow it up in the goodness of God. And he says, in that day, you're going to know the reason you went through what you went through, and it will all make sense, and it will all be worth it. And you'll find out that God was actually using your suffering all along. You got one chance in this life to go through suffering and give God the glory in it. Because in heaven, you will not suffer, folks. This is the last time you get a chance to shed a tear and worship God anyway. This is the last time you get to experience loss and worship God anyway. This is the last time you get to be betrayed and hurt and, and, and destroyed, but yet respond in forgiveness and love. You won't get to do it on the other side. This is a test. Class is in session. 
And he's saying, how are you going to respond to your suffering? He says, arm yourselves with the same mindset. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Then Hebrews 4, 15, 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying Jesus has went through the same suffering that you went through. He cried out to the one that he knew could, could deliver him. And you know what happened? God forced him to go through that suffering anyway. But he learned obedience. The point being is you're learning something through this season if you'll turn to God and allow him to teach you. When you're going through suffering, he says you've got one that can sympathize with your weaknesses. He can sympathize when you want to break down and throw a cuss and fit. When you want to rage on somebody, he can sympathize whenever you are depressed. He can sympathize whenever you are sorrowful unto death. He's gone through what you've gone through, he says. But he says, now, because he's done it, there's a throne of grace open where you can come during those times and receive mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Amen? So I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. I don't know where you're at, but the fact of the matter is, the first and most important thing is, you know, may, maybe you're in here and, and you, you felt like you've been far from God, or maybe you've never even chosen to walk with God at all. And that's, that's the first thing, is that you need a relationship with this God who can sustain you through suffering. And so if that's you, you say, man, I felt distant from God and I just need God to restore me. I need, I need the joy of my salvation restored or, or I've never followed God at all and I, and I need to start following Jesus. If that's you, just as an act of faith so I can pray for you. Would you raise your hand this morning and just let me see you? Just say, that's me. I need, I need God to move in my life in that area. I see a hand over here. Anybody else? I see another hand. And just as that, see, God sees you. And God loves you, even in your failure, even in your weakness. And so, church, would you help me pray for these people that just raised their hands right now? Father, we pray for these people that are going through suffering, that are going through pain. Or, Lord Jesus, that haven't even followed you. Or that know they need a closer walk with you. And I pray right now, God, by the power of your Spirit, you would wrap your arms around them. You would remind them in this moment of just how much that you love them. You would strengthen them. And, Lord God, you would save their souls. God, your word says that if we confess our sin, you cleanse us and you forgive us. And if we confess you as the Lord of our lives, we shall be saved. And so, Jesus, we declare that you are Lord of our lives. You are the owner and we are merely the stewards. So save us, wash us in your blood, fill us with your spirit, God. And, and Lord, for the people this morning that are going through suffering, I pray that you come to comfort them and you give them the mindset that is in Christ that only you can give this morning. God, we trust you to do it. And we pray for you to complete that work in each of them in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet this morning with me. We're going to worship. And here's the thing. I, I know that there's people going through difficulties. 
This altar is open if you want to come and pray. If you need prayer for yourself, if you need prayer for somebody else, I'd, I'd love to pray with you. I'm sure there's other people that will come forward and, and pray with you this morning. But let's just take a moment to respond to the Lord because there's something that happens when we hear a word from the Lord and we actually respond to it. So whether at your seat or if you want to come forward and pray or you need to pray for somebody, just take a moment here to respond to the Lord as we worship.